Welcome to Earth Matters, environment and social justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced in the studios of 3CR on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Judith Peppard. Today on Earth Matters, we look at social justice and human rights concerns resulting from the long-running international war on drugs, the impact it's had on some of the world's poorest people, and on the environment. These concerns were brought into sharp focus at the Harm Reduction International Conference held in Nam, Melbourne, in April this year. Helen Clark former Prime Minister of New Zealand and now Chair of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, set the scene, calling for decriminalization and regulation of all drugs, where he noted that prohibition had been a costly failure, and keeping some drugs illegal and in the hands of organized crime led to a myriad of social and health problems. She noted that punitive drug laws were a major driver of incarceration, with an estimated 2.2 million people worldwide in prison for drug offences, and over 20% of those offences were for possession for personal use. I caught up with four people who spoke at the Harm Reduction International Conference about the work they were doing to reduce drug-related harm and create health-enhancing policy change in Australia, in Singapore, Thailand, and in Colombia. We begin in Australia, in the ACT, I'm Rachel Stephen-Smith, I'm the ACT Minister for Health and I'm here to talk about our nation leading work in drug law reform but also learn from others about their experiences around the world in harm reduction. Tell me about your groundbreaking work in the ACT. Well, we've got a couple of things that we're really talking about here at the conference. The first is our work in uh, pill testing and drug checking. So the ACT, Australian Capital Territory, our capital city, obviously a self-governing small jurisdiction, have been the first in Australia to support festival-based pill testing in 2018 and 2019, pre-COVID, and now to establish a fixed-site drug checking facility in the centre of our city uh, for a few hours a week to ensure that people can get their drugs checked, but also access uh, free health advice from peer workers and nurses, including advice around drug use, but also sexual health advice and some other harm minimisation advice. So that's been really innovative. And we've also got coming into effect in October this year, laws that were passed in October last year to decriminalise the possession of small amounts of illicit substances to create what's called a simple drug offence notice to reduce the the implementation to a fine of $100 or diversion to a treatment and assessment program for people who are identified as being in possession of a small amount of the most commonly used illicit drugs, including psilocybin, MDMA, heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine. This sounds quite similar to what happened in Portugal. Were you influenced at all by Portugal? Yeah, we certainly have done a lot of work to look at what happened in Portugal, the benefits of that reform. it's, a, it's not the same thing, but the, the concept is very similar, and particularly around understanding that having drug possession 
for personal use as a criminal offence actually discourages people from coming forward to get health care. Uh, it creates a, a level of stigma and a level of fear around potential engagement with the criminal justice system that actually moves people further away from the health system response we want them to, you know, to be able to engage with. Uh, so reducing stigma, reducing fear and ensuring that we have the services there to support people uh, to come forward and get treatment for their dependency if that's what they want or if they're using drugs recreationally and they want to continue doing that, ensuring that they're able to do that in a way that causes less harm through potential engagement with the criminal justice system and uh, we're adding a level of safety through things like the drug checking as well. So all of our policies sort of working together to have a fundamental commitment to harm reduction as a pillar of the broader harm minimisation strategy. Rachel Stephen-Smith, Minister for Health in the Australian Capital Territory, on the actions the ACT has taken to prevent drug-related harm, and it will be fascinating to see if other jurisdictions in Australia follow their lead. In Singapore, a very different system is in place. Kirsten Hahn told the Harm Reduction International Conference that the death penalty is still being applied for drug-related offences in Singapore, and she described the advocacy work of the Transformative Justice Collective. The Transformative Justice Collective aims to demystify the legal punishment system and to encourage Singaporeans to imagine alternatives to punitive policies. So we do a lot of work around prison conditions, around abolition of the death penalty, drug policy, and everything that's kind of related to this culture of uh, punishment that we have in Singapore. I'm wondering how easy is it to advocate for change of policy or abolition of the death penalty and other punishments or punitive approach to drugs in Singapore? It is very challenging because we have a population that over decades has had this entrenched mindset that justice equals vengeance and punishment. So if you do something wrong, if you commit a crime, the emphasis is always on punishment. And we imagine that, oh, once a person is punished, then that's justice achieved. And so it's very difficult then to talk about these things like human rights and and human dignity and self-determination when the mindset is always, oh, if you're not punishing, then you're enabling. So when we talk about abolishing the death penalty, a lot of people go, oh, so you want to let drug traffickers run free? And it is challenging to kind of present that narrative that says, no, it's not about whether we execute or we let drug traffickers run free. That's not the framing in which we should look at the situation. We should look at people's health and well-being and human rights and systemic oppression. And it takes a long time, I think, to shift that sort of social mindset because we're so used to thinking, oh, if there's a problem, then you just impose a punishment and the problem will go away. So I think it takes us a very long time. It's a big challenge for us. And how did you become involved in this issue? How has it touched you or what motivated you? So in 2010, I moved home to Singapore after having done my undergraduate degree in New Zealand. And when I got back home, While I was job hunting, I was volunteering on the side for a small citizen journalism website called The Online Citizen. And at the time, they were running a campaign for the abolition of the mandatory death penalty in Singapore, uh, kind of built around the case of a young Malaysian boy who had been arrested for drug trafficking and sentenced to death. 
and that was actually my first encounter so close up with the death penalty because previously in school it had been a very abstract idea we'd just been told that oh drugs are bad and therefore drug traffickers are bad so if we hang the drug traffickers that solves the drug problem and that was very much the narrative growing up and it's still very much a narrative in Singapore today and up to that point up until I came across this case of Yong Vui Kong and the online citizens campaign against the mandatory death penalty I was quite happy to accept that narrative but seeing Yong Vui Kong and his story and then reading the laws, the Misuse of Drugs Act and the drug policies that we have made me realize that the death penalty's implementation is very different from what I had imagined. It's not the people that I imagined on death row. I always imagined them to be like big drug syndicate mafia bosses and they're not. They're all kind of underprivileged working class um, men, often quite young men, and they were all drug mules and none of them were big drug lords. And so it really kind of, that reality really hit very hard and changed my view. And so I started getting involved in the death penalty campaign. So I, I understand that power of information because that was my own journey of learning about the death penalty and coming to oppose it. So I really do focus a lot on trying to work on that public education to get more Singaporeans to realize the same things that I've done. And how old was the young Malaysian boy who you, people were advocating against the death penalty for? How old was he? Uh, in 2010, Kong was probably... He's only six months older than me, so he was probably about 21 or 22. And he had been arrested at around age 19. So he was really very young at the time. And, and so my entry point to campaigning for him also was to emphasize that we are actually very close in age, but my life trajectory was so d different from his because I was born into privilege. You know, I'm born into this middle-class family that could even afford to send me to New Zealand and have a university degree and come back and do whatever I want to do. Whereas he was born to a very poor working-class family in one of the poorest states of Malaysia and didn't have that much opportunity. At the time that he was arrested, he was actually illiterate and taught himself how to read in prison. Was the death penalty applied to him? So it was very lucky that there was a lot of campaigning. And finally, in 2012, 2013, the Singapore Parliament passed amendments to the law that allowed certain narrow criteria in which the courts could sentence someone to a life sentence instead of the death penalty. And so Vui Kong became eligible for resentencing, and his death sentence was set aside in favor of a life imprisonment. So he is still alive today, although he is spending his life in prison. Kirsten Hahn from the Transformative Justice Collective in Singapore. And just over a week after Kirsten spoke at the Harm Reduction International Conference, we heard the news that another person had been executed in Singapore for trafficking a kilogram of cannabis. The execution went ahead despite questionable evidence and an international outcry. And while attitudes towards the death penalty for drug offences are changing in Southeast Asia, Thailand decriminalised cannabis last year, and Malaysia's parliament recently passed reforms to remove the mandatory death penalty. But Singapore's government continues to support it, which leaves judges with little option but to apply it. 
You're on Earth Matters, produced at 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And today, we're looking at the Harm Reduction International Conference held in Nam, Melbourne, in April. Over a thousand delegates from more than 80 countries attended. Policymakers, frontline health professionals, human rights advocates, and networks of people who use drugs was one of those networks, the Thai Drug Users Network, that introduced the mobile methadone program for drug users within ethnic groups in northern Thailand, which began last year. Northern Thailand is home to many ethnic groups, and opium and heroin have been used there for years to treat illnesses such as stomach aches and diarrhea as a painkiller or for work fatigue. And since northern Thailand borders on Myanmar, one of the largest producers of heroin and opium in the world, there is a constant, if expensive, supply. Nilawan Pitak Panawong told me more about why the mobile methadone program is so important. I work for Drug Users Network in Thailand, so we have the project methadone therapy in ethnic groups in Phang District, Thailand. What ethnic groups are there? Lahu people, Karen people, Akka people, Padong people, Hmong people, Mian people, oh, many, many kinds. And uh, you're very close to the border of Myanmar. Yes, just you climbing the mountain, this is the border. And you're involved in providing methadone for methadone therapy. How do you do that? Our outreach worker, who is X and right now is drug user too, going to a village and find who is drug user. If we find, we give education about HIV, STI, hepatitis C, harm reduction. And then after that, we provide condom and clean equipment like a needle to them. And after they have the, the knowledge, the decision to test HIV and to get methadone therapy at hospital. So our staff bring them to the hospital. Our staff help to talk with the health service provider because they are ethnic groups. They cannot speak in Thai language. So our staff uh, translate for them. I see. So they mainly get their methadone from the hospital? First of all, you should start methadone therapy at hospital because they need to follow up you for two or three times about effects of methadone in your body. And if you can eat the dose, if it's suitable for you, you can receive methadone therapy in mobile methadone therapy in village. What you're saying is people have to check about how much methadone they can use? Yes, because if you come to hospital, health provider or doctor can check about your drugs, how many times you use in one day and how much you use. And if they give you too much or not enough like that. And if you eat methadone, what effects will uh, going on like this, yes. If they shake, after they shake and you can uh, eat for this dose, Okay, all right, you can uh, receive at the mobile methadone. How do people get mobile methadone to people who need it? We set up the date with provider, bring methadone from hospital and come to the village. Our staff, outreach worker, will prepare for the place 
and prepare for our friends or drug users and call them to uh, receive methadone at the center like a school or like a health service provider in the local sector. Uh, some place we use uh, like a temple, some place we use like a community leader house. So we provide them there for solve the problem of uh, this continues. In some village, we don't have the place that uh, most people can come and uh, do activity like this. So we need some place to use. Another reason that drug users cannot want to go to a hospital because on the way, when they are going to a hospital, they must arrest it by police. Why would they be arrested if they're just going to the hospital? Because the police must check, you know, urine. If they check urine, they have opium or heroin, arrest by police and go to police station. So would people be taking methadone and heroin or opium at the same time? Yes, because some people, they get methadone but not enough doses. I see, so that makes sense, yes. yes. Drug users cannot travel because they are very poor. They don't have vehicle to travel to uh, the hospital. So the public transportation is not available in the village. And uh, the distance is very far. So if they are not continue, they beg to use opium and uh, heroin. So if we provide this in the village, we can solve this problem and our friends can improve their health too, and they have a relationship uh, with uh, a family. We can solve this problem. So I think uh, provide mobile methadone therapy is important for Thailand. And when you are providing the mobile methadone, how do you travel? Health service provider at hospital, they have a hospital van and for uh, our staff, they are waiting in the community because they are the villagers in the village. So you use the hospital van? Yes, for a hospital, a health service provider. But our staff, uh, they are going to there by motorcycle or cars or like that, yes. I see, so there's a number of ways you can travel. Yes. Yeah. What are the good things about the project? that you have seen so far? We are human beings, so our friends, drug user is human being too. They should uh, receive best service. And if we can help one people who cannot work if they use drug to get mobile methadone therapy and they can work and to earn money for family and they can look after their children. This is the best thing that I think. Dilawan Pitak Panawong. And last year, 118 people participated in the program and received free methadone therapy. 80% were from ethnic groups. Some people reduced heroin injections from five to one or two per day, which meant they had more money to spend on other things, and their health and family lives improved. My last guest on Earth Matters today is academic and activist Diego Andres Lugo Vivas from CET Academic Programs in Colombia.
Diego talked about the impact of the war on drugs on the environment in Colombia. I'm actually a, a scholar trying to push really strongly environmental ecological harm reduction. The war on drugs has to do a lot with environmental impacts. When you have countries such as Colombia or Peru or Bolivia, which are the largest growers of coca and producers of cocaine, there is an insistence to make the families that grow coca replace those crops for licit crops. So you're talking about the authorities in Colombia and also influenced by international regimes. Yeah. I think everybody knows that the most important ally for Colombia in this war on drugs is the U.S. So Colombia has been following orders from the U.S., I might say too from the United Nations too. And when we have these substitution policies oriented towards the replacement of illicit crops toward illicit crops. So what I try to do is to analyze the toxicity and the toxic burden associated to those new legal activities due to the use of pesticides and fertilizers, that it is sold as a, as a way of promoting new development. It's a large-scale cultivation of monocrops that are flooding the countryside in Colombia. You might find that, that very condition in countries such as Brazil and Peru that use the war on drugs as an excuse or as a, as a motor bringing uh, new capital, usually associated with large financial and economic institutions. And we sounds like a huge agribusiness if it's monocrops. Yeah. And so what, what would some of those monocrops be? What crops are they? There is something that we call as flex crops, flexible crops that are used as food, as feed, and as fuel. So crops such as cane and sugarcane that might be used as a food, as a feed, and as, and as a fuel. And sugarcane is very interesting because Colombia has become an active actor in the promotion of sugarcane, not only within Colombia, conquering other countries with the sugarcane industry, monocrops that make homogeneous the landscapes. And I might say that Colombia has a tradition and violence associated to that tradition in very particular uh, monocrops. Sugarcane is one of those, and palm oil is another one. And just going back now, I imagine coca had a, quite an important role before all of this war on drugs, before cocaine became illegal, would have had a, a cultural role or a role for health purposes. Is that correct? Yeah. Colombia might be the largest producer of cocaine, but before uh, this idea of the war on drugs, the Andes uh, was a place uh, for coca uh, as a leaf. There are evidence of, I think, between 2,000 and 3,000 years before Christ of the already use of people using already coca as a leaf. And your question is important in my case because I come from the most indigenous department of Colombia. So for me, coca, it has been part of, uh, of the cultural tradition of indigenous communities, might be NASA communities. What would it be used for? Are there some particular benefits? For example, when we have extended hours in, in cultivations, such as uh, cocoa plantations, usually uh, indigenous and, 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 and people, peasants or Afro-Colombians, Afro they chew uh, coca in order to, to continue with the, labor, uh, with the labor conditions. But medically, uh, coca and marijuana too are effective to treat anxiety for particular 
traditions in cooking. So we have different uses from medical reasons, entertainment, recreational use. You've talked about monoculture. You've talked about how the land is being damaged. What are some solutions for Colombia? Harm reduction in Colombia needs to be addressed in a way that the Colombian society and the governments acknowledge their debt and their responsibility with the lowest link in the production chain. We know that Colombia, as the largest producer and as the largest cultivator, also has the largest population growing coca. And it's towards them that the impacts have been translated. That means that Colombia and the international community has an, an extensive debt towards communities that have received of the punishment. In that sense, harm reduction needs to address the historical responsibility of different actors nationally and internationally and their impact that their policies have had towards the lowest link in the transnational chain of cocaine, which happened to be the poor and dispossessed Hassan of mestiza origin, Afro-descendant origin, and indigenous origin. The war on drugs cannot be understood if we don't understand the violence in the world, the patriarchal violence, the machista violence, the racism, discrimination, and inequality. But if we analyze the situation in the environment, we might say the same. The environmental crisis that Colombia and other countries have been facing during the last decades belong to a broader set of environmentally harmful expressions, particularly financializing, privatizing, and extracting everything. Unless we address those sources of violence, we are just applying palliative measures in these conflicts and, and expressions. Diego Andres Lugo Vivas from CET Academic Programs in Colombia, who spoke on the last day of the Harm Reduction International Conference, bringing us back to the theme of the conference, strength and solidarity, and how the campaign to end prohibition and punitive drug policies is linked to allied movements for the environment, health, human rights, and social justice. To find out more about the Harm Reduction International Conference, Google HR23. And if you want to hear the inspiring opening keynote address by Helen Clark, Chair of the Global Commission on Drug Policy, Google Helen Clark at the opening of HR23 hyphen YouTube. We're coming to the end of Earth Matters. A big thank you to all our guests, Rachel Stephen Smith, Minister for Health in the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, Kirsten Han from the Transformative Justice Collective in Singapore, Nilawan Pitak Panawong from the Thai Drug Users Network, and Diego Andres Lugo Vivas academic and activist from CET Academic Programs in Colombia. Earth Matters thanks the Community Radio Network for getting today's episode out to you and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio Station in Nam, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And that's all for now. But tune in next week for more environment and social justice stories. Thank you.